Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. It's been a dramatic week and a troubling week in Idaho's battle with the coronavirus pandemic. Just some of the headlines that we've seen in the past few days. Caldwell School District instituted a mask mandate a few days into the school year. Boise State University administrators said that an outbreak and rising coronavirus case numbers jeopardize face-to-face learning on campus and jeopardize campus events. And perhaps most dramatically, Governor Brad Little on Tuesday announced that he will call out the National Guard once again to help overwhelmed hospitals dealing with record COVID-19 patient loads. What does all this mean and what does this all mean for education? This week, I sit down with a repeat guest on the podcast, Dr. David Pate, the retired CEO of the St. Luke's Healthcare System and also a member of Governor Brad Little's Coronavirus Working Group to help us make sense of what's happened in the past few days and what the next few weeks may hold. Here's our conversation. Well, Dr. Pate, thank you for coming back on this podcast. I, Like I said before, I didn't think we'd be talking about this again uh, quite like this, but a lot of news just in the past few days. Uh, let's start with Tuesday. The governor is seeking reinforcements, including the National Guard, to try to help really overwhelmed hospitals. What was your reaction to that news? Well, I, I certainly wasn't surprised. I realized for some time how rough a situation our hospitals are in. Uh, But like what you were saying earlier, I think it's a sad commentary that here we are 20 months into a uh, pandemic, um, eight months with vaccine, Mm -hmm. and yet we're facing the potential collapse of our healthcare system. And I don't know that people really get this or understand what this would mean to them. I think one of my surprises, maybe not a surprise, but one of my takeaways listening to the governor on Tuesday was talking about his trip to an ICU and seeing not just the crowding in the ICU, but the fact that everybody there was unvaccinated. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, it's been said many times, uh, we now have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. However, it's huge. And it does, to some extent, threaten the vaccinated. Uh, but, but it is true that the overwhelming majority of people that are ending up in our hospitals right now are all suffering terribly from a preventable disease. You talked about the threats, not just to the unvaccinated, but to the vaccinated. And it does kind of get us to the issue of crisis standards of care. That's a term you're familiar with in the medical profession, in the education space. We're not as familiar with it. I mean, what what does it mean? And what are the implications for you know, a parent or a school trustee or a school administrator? What should we know about the situation that uh, could be looming here? So normally, Kevin, in normal times, if you were my patient and I saw you for a problem, I would do whatever it is that I thought you needed. If you needed to be in the ICU, I'd put you in the ICU. If you needed a ventilator, I'd give you a ventilator, whatever. What crisis standards of care mean is that decision is now taken out of my hands. It means that we we don't have enough resources. And so we have to pick and choose who gets those limited resources. And what it means is that if you show up in the emergency room 
and it might not be COVID. I mean, we have to realize it, COVID's not the only thing happening right mm-hmm. now. Uh, people still have a heart attacks. People still get strokes. People still get in car accidents. Uh, people still do crazy things and fall off a roof or a tree or whatever. So things still happen. But what it means now is instead of like every Idahoan has just always counted on, if we go to the emergency room, they'll be there. They can treat us promptly and we'll get whatever care we need. You won't be able to do that. Yes, you're going to get cared for, but you may not get all of the care that we would ordinarily give to somebody, which means for some people, they may not survive an illness or injury that under normal conditions they would have. And the other thing that happens, which is terribly distressing, uh, Kevin, is that well, first of all, you know, before, you know, if we if we have somebody in our emergency room and they need something and we don't have it, we do try to find is there another yeah. hospital available that can do that. The problem is we're running out of choices. Uh, you know, in the past month, we've had transfers uh, to hospitals here in Idaho because there's no other hospitals available from Georgia, Oklahoma. Right. That, this is not like there's other hospitals we can turn to. Uh, we got transfers a couple weeks ago that the people had called 30 hospitals trying to find one with a bed for the patient. And this means a big delay. And let me tell you, when when you have a family with their family member in the emergency room and they know their family member needs care and can't get it, it's terribly distressing. We had a situation in Texas where uh, a young man in his early 40s had a medical problem uh, that really is a surgical problem. Uh, it wasn't COVID, uh, but he was in a small hospital in Texas. It's a condition that we can treat, but if you don't treat it, it is life-threatening. It took seven hours for that ER physician to find a hospital with a bed because they're all filled with COVID patients before he could transfer this person they, they flew the 40, I think 42 year old man to Houston. And by the time he got there, they said he was too far gone. They, they could not save his life and he died. And this, and under normal circumstances, this 42 year old would not die. Would have gotten the help he needed when he needed it. So, I mean, for a parent and for kids, I mean, this could have implications for not just COVID and I want to get there, but it could have implications if you had a flu outbreak at a school. We're not quite to flu season yet, but it's coming. Yeah. Uh, a sports injury, you name it. I mean, anything that requires a kid to go to an ER, it might be a very different experience than it would be normally. Yeah, and Kevin, um, I, I haven't said this before because, uh, you know, whenever whenever you try to explain these things, you always run the risk of people think you're just trying to create fear. I'm not trying to create fear. I'm trying to create rationality. Uh, but I, I actually am particularly afraid for the children, not, not because we're going to have a lot of children dying from COVID. That's not what we see. But people don't understand. We do not have the same pediatric infrastructure across this country that we have for adults, because typically children don't need as many services as older people, and they don't typically get as sick as older people. So the problem that we're finding now, and I, I see very little coverage of this, but we're actually have a problem 
with pediatric ICU beds running out in the country because even a, a relatively small increase in demand for those can overwhelm the system. And we're now hearing from a large children's hospitals in a number of states that they're getting to the point where they can't care for the children. Uh, we saw this in, in Texas Children's Hospital. And, and let me just put this in perspective for you, because I was the CEO of a adjoining hospital at Texas Children's Hospital back in Houston. Texas Children's Hospital now has as many beds for children as St. Luke's Health System has in all of Idaho. Period. And they got overwhelmed. They had to treat, they had to decline a child and fly that child on a helicopter 150 miles away. And 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 you you cannot appreciate what these parents go through when they have to leave their homes, travel, leave their support systems incur costs for hotels or wherever they're staying uh, and, and, and the stress of being in a completely different area with no support for a very sick child. It, it's really, it's heart crushing. Well, let's, let's talk about this Delta variant and how it might affect kids because there's no question that the numbers are increasing. I mean, I did the math here Wednesday morning. I mean, just since Friday, we've had more than 500 new cases in Idaho involving five to 17 year olds. So those are numbers we've not seen before, but that's the easy part. The math is easy to figure out, but yeah. if you can kind of walk us through, is this more of a risk for kids? Is there, is there more uh, of a threat that this poses as opposed to previous strains of the, of the virus? It, it, it definitely is the case. And I think, you know, that, that has been what has been so frustrating for me as I listen to some of the school boards. I, I don't know if they don't understand or if they're not hearing us that the virus that we're dealing with today is completely different than what we dealt with last school year. So let me just compare and contrast okay. for you so that you understand the difference. So last year, um, the previous strains, previous to Alpha and Delta, um, we saw very little infection in children, especially young children. Most of the children that got infected tended to be more of the 12 and above kind of teenager group. Um, and when younger children got infected, they didn't transmit this virus very efficiently. So that was last year. What are we seeing this year? We're seeing that this virus way more contagious and it infects people of all ages, including children of all ages. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we're seeing is where, again, last year, typically it was 12 and above that transmitted this virus. Now, if you just look at kids, the highest risk transmission group, zero to three. This is completely different yeah. than what we dealt with last year. Last year, very, very few children hospitalized. We, I've been following because, you know, our outbreak here in, in our surge in Idaho is lagging behind what's happened in the South. So I always look at other areas of the world or the country that are ahead of us to kind of see what are they experiencing so that we can be prepared. Now, it may or may not happen here, but let's be prepared. Now, 
when I talked with a hospital in Louisiana, a children's hospital, in June, average age of a child hospitalized with COVID, 16. In July, 12. Hmm. In mid-August, 5. They just said today, half of the children hospitalized are now two and under. Hmm. So we're dealing with something very, very different. Now, I do want to stress, not everything is different. So first of all, we still tend to see children don't, by and large, get as sick as adults. Mm -hmm. That is a general rule. The scary part is more kids are getting really sick, and we have no idea how to predict who those are. The, you know, last year, it was really easy to know who were the high-risk people, who were most likely to get really sick and be in the hospital. It was people who are old like me or people that have a lot of underlying medical conditions. Let me tell you, more than half of the people that we have in ICUs today, we don't, they're not old, and we have no, we're not identifying underlying health conditions that will put them at risk. So this is behaving very differently. Now, here's what the school boards either aren't hearing or aren't understanding. This is not a matter that we need to take precautions in our schools because we're afraid children are going to get terribly ill. Some will, but that's not our our major fear. What the major fear is that these kids are going to transmit this virus much more than last year. As an example, last year, the rate of in-facility transmission, so now we're talking about in a school, in a classroom, in a, in a school building, if somebody gets infected, what percent of other kids would get infected? Last year, with prior strains, with masks, it was about 1%. I was studying what was happening over the summer to warn schools about what we might see this year. And what I told schools is what we saw this summer is in-facility transmission rates with Delta, with inconsistent mask wearing, 20 to 33%. Wow. Now, what have we seen? Well, you probably saw the numbers from Caldwell uh, School. Um, And if you look at those schools, you know what that uh, in-facility transmission rate was? 20 to 29 it's, it's right smack dab in the, the levels I predicted. So this is much more contagious. And then the final point is, uh, Kevin, that what we have to worry about is that many more kids are going to get infected. And then what's going to happen is not that the kids are going to get real sick, but they're going to go home. And what we see with transmission rates in families last year, 17%. End of last year, 27 percent now 53 to 100 percent we are seeing many more cases now where if one person in the family gets sick they all do mom dad kids and what the problem is is that on average only about a little less than half of all these parents are fully vaccinated and so it's not our kids filling up our hospital necessarily but it's our kids' parents, parents right. that are now filling up our hospitals. 
Well, so what do you make of the response we're just seeing just in this valley from school boards? I mean, it's been all over the place. Boise went with the mask requirement before the school year started. Caldwell, you mentioned reverse course. They're going with a mask requirement after the beginning of the year. West Ada obviously started with an opt-out policy, and we've seen large numbers of opt-outs. What do you make of all of this? Uh, You know, I just have to say, in some respects, I'm not surprised because uh, we've seen a resistance from some of the school boards to follow uh, medical and public health advice. But I will have to tell you, uh, you know, I was I was pleasantly surprised by the Boise School District. They did better than I thought they were going to do. I was very proud about that. And then I will tell you, you know, at this point, Kevin, it takes more to get me shocked. But I have to tell you, I listened to the West Ada uh, school board meeting, and there were probably three times I was just actually like jaw dropped, shocked. I what I find so shocking is number one, if if our hospitals are coming to us and begging and pleading and telling us, look, things are bad. We're going to be in trouble. And the board just disregards that. Right. I, I mean, first of all, I thought that was shocking. Now, that was a meeting a week before, you know, what yeah. we saw the governor do on Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and in fact, all the things we've been warning about are happening now. Now the hospitals, I, I mean, we've got very few ICU beds in the state. Uh, the governor's bringing in the National Guard. I mean, what more do we, how can we tell you things are bad any better than how we have? The second thing is the discussion, the, the, the fact that the board does not understand what you and I just talked about, and they're talking about, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't bad for kids and all. You're missing the complete, you know, they're focusing, well, how many kids are hospitalized? How many kids are dying? You're missing the whole point. They don't under—they don't understand, or they're not willing to understand how this works and how we need to protect our communities. It's and our a hospitals. community transmission issue, not just a within a classroom exactly. transmission. Exactly, issue. and and then the discussion. I mean, thank God they voted against it, but it was a nail biter of the concept that you could actually quarantine kids in school. I I, I mean, I mean, that's just uh, mind boggling. You don't understand what quarantining is. And and so it was, I I mean, to be at this point, (laughs) 20 minutes, I mean, you can understand that there'd be a lot of confusion early on. We're still trying to understand this, learn it, but 20 months in and we still don't understand how this virus works. And, And especially when you hear, comments from the uh, superintendent that, oh, well, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to um, uh, require masks, but we'll focus on other mitigation uh, measures like, you know, hand washing and cleaning surfaces and all. You still don't know how this virus is transmitted? I mean, it's, it's, it's just mind boggling. Let me ask you about the vaccinations, especially vaccinations for junior high school age and high school age kids, because I've been kind of struck as I watched the numbers, the vaccination rates for you know teenagers are the lowest we've got of any vaccination rates in any age group yeah. in the state. But you have higher vaccination rates among the age groups of their parents. What yeah. do you think is going on there? 
Well, it's interesting. I, uh, a couple months ago, I had a uh, Zoom uh, conference with 14 parents of 14-year-old girls and uh, because they were all involved in a sports uh, activity. And, uh, you know, these parents, uh, these were not crazy conspiracy throwing around parents. Uh, that's not what this was. They were just concerned, you know, do, do this my, and, and most of them were vaccinated, but they were very hesitant about getting their kids vaccinated. And it was like, well, but do they really need it? You know, kids don't get that sick. Is it worth giving them vaccine? Should we just wait and get more time, more data? You know, they, they were not really unreasonable questions. Uh, and it wasn't because they were were promoting the crazy kind of things that we've heard from some about vaccines. That wasn't it. So I just talked. It was really hesitancy. And, it wasn't outright. Yeah, out, just out. hesitancy. And and a lot of people think that they still are under the same impression that it seems like some of the school boards are that, of what happened last year that, oh, well, this is not really a big deal for kids. It's a bigger deal for kids today than it was back then. Plus, a long time ago, uh, you know, in this pandemic, we used to think that the people that got long COVID were adults. We now realize kids get it too. And and so it's not even, you know, there's been so much focus on, well, what's the chance of my kid dying? Well, people are learning they should be concerned about some of the other consequences to your kid, even if your kid survives. And so I, I think all of this has really hurt the effort, but me engaging in a conversation with them answering the questions and then i got the follow-up after our call every one of them got their child vaccinated it's just that they they don't understand and there's not a great place for them to go to get their questions answered so it's really 20 months in it's still a one-to-one education issue it is it's it's painfully slow but i'll tell you the benefits First of all, when people get in large groups, I mean, you, like you can't talk to a group of parents that are in yellow shirts at a board meeting. You're not going to be able to have an intelligent conversation. But when you get people one on one and you really seek to understand, you listen to say, tell tell me what your concerns are. What are you worried about? Why are you waiting? And, and you start to have this conversation. I won't say that my success rate is 100 percent. But it's at least close to about seventy percent that I can I can give them enough information to that they then get vaccinated. Okay, my last question, and, and it's an unfair question because I'm going to ask you to kind of look into the future. I mean, the modeling that the state has has put out suggests that we could be looking at thirty thousand cases by October, and that's like three times as high as we saw back in December during the peak. But we're also seeing signs that maybe it's not going to maybe we're already there. I mean, my New York Times you know newsletter feed this morning, the, the headline was, has Delta peaked, you know, pointing to what's happening nationally, what did happen in India, what did happen in England. I mean, what are we to believe and what are we to expect yeah. here in the next few weeks? Again, unfair question, but I'll ask it anyway. Well, no, it's, it's actually a reasonable question. I get it asked it all the time, and obviously I don't know. But here's what I can piece together. First of all, I have no reason to believe that Delta will be worse here in Idaho than it has been in Florida, Texas, India, so forth. So I certainly do expect that we're going to hit a peak at some point. I don't think we're there. 
But I do think we're going to hit a peak at some point, and then it'll come down pretty quickly. And I am actually hopeful uh, that this peak will be down. Maybe we'll be back to close to like April levels before the holidays. I, I think that's a very reasonable possibility. I, you know, the current models, as you say, suggest that for Idaho, we're going to peak maybe mid-October. I think it's going to be earlier because I think our hands are going to be forced. We really are days away from crisis standards of care, weeks at the most. Um, we're not going to get through September unless either the virus changes its behavior, which I have no reason to believe it will, or people will change their behavior. And I don't know if, if enough people are going to change the behavior. But if, if that doesn't happen, we're going to get so bad this month, we're going to have to take drastic right. steps. I don't know exactly what those are, what leaders are going to be willing to do, but you can't have our hospitals completely overwhelmed, people dying because they can't get a hospital bed and allow that to go very long. So we'll do something which will probably then help bring those cases down. So I don't think we're going to make it till mid-October. That's the good and bad news. Right. Um, now, so I think I think we'll, we'll peak. Cases will come down. This is what it always does. This is a cyclical virus. Now, what we have to do is not fall for the trap that we've done three times already. By the fourth time, we probably ought to get the idea that just because it comes down does not mean this is over. That it's going to stay I down. Think, that's right. I think there's several possibilities. One is that that it, it, the you know all viruses do have a limit on how much they can mutate before it actually just makes the virus so it's not functional. I don't know that we're there. But we, it's possible we're getting to the point where we're not going to see anything too substantive more in terms of changes uh, in variance. And then maybe it will stay relatively down, maybe like at le April levels for a while. So that's one possibility. That's my uh, rose-colored glasses uh, view of it. Um, the other uh, view, which is probably more expected, is we're going to come down within two or three months. We'll have the next variant and we'll have another surge. Maybe it's spring. Um, my nightmare scenario is that uh, what we is happening is Delta has so much of it's what we call a fitness advantage when we have more than one form of the virus, uh, as we've seen throughout this, one tends to emerge and take over. We say that virus has a fitness advantage. In Delta's case, it's because it's so darn contagious. Right. What I worry is that we could have a situation, I don't think this is likely, but I think that it's a concern. We could have a situation kind of like what Brazil had, uh, Peru, some of those uh, countries, where they had a big surge with a, a contagious form of the virus, but there was a, a another variant that just had much more immune escape capability, but it wasn't near as contagious. So it's low levels. What it waited is it waited till the real contagious form burned through the population, 
and and it didn't have to compete against that form anymore. And then it took off. And it became that, the dominant strain. That would be our nightmare situation. I don't think it's the most likely. I think it's actually the least likely, but uh, I don't think we can rule it out either. So we've got to, we have to slow down the transmission. And this is the other part that school boards don't understand. Even if kids don't get hospitalized and die, they're transmitting this virus and we're increasing the transmission of the virus. And when we increase the transmission of the virus, we promote mutations. When you promote mutations, you will increase your chances that a variant that is bad will emerge. And so if we want to get through this, what we have to do is we have to slow down the transmission somehow. You can get vaccinated, you can get the disease and survive and have some immunity, or you can wear masks. But we gotta do one of the three and slow this transmission down or we're just gonna keep dealing with this. Well, Dr. Pate, again, I appreciate your you taking the time to put this in perspective and you know, no offense, I hope we don't have to do this again in a few months, but if, if certain situations warrant, I may be uh, calling on you again. Thank well, you so hopefully much. Hopefully, we talk about something else. <laughs> let, let, let's 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 hope so. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Again, that was Dr. David Pate, the retired CEO of the St. Luke's Healthcare System, also a member of Governor Brad Little's Coronavirus Working Group. And if you're like me and you spend any time on Twitter, you know Dr. Pate by the handle Dr. Pate's Blog. He's a must-follow if you're trying to get the latest news on coronavirus and how the pandemic may affect Idaho. Again, that's Dr. Pate's Blog. That'll take care of the podcast this week. It's uh, been a busy week over at idahoednews.org and a few headlines that uh, you should check out if you haven't already. Sammy Edge has a story about State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra's latest budget request. What is she looking for in terms of teacher pay? And what is she looking for in terms of all-day kindergarten funding? We have that story. Blake Jones has a story on the latest teacher evaluation scores, how the numbers came in this year as opposed to previous years. Again, that's a story you can find at idahoednews.org. You can follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We will tweet out the links to our latest stories, any bulletins on breaking items. You can follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And check back next Friday for another edition of this podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good and safe Labor Day weekend.